everybody, it's the Vertigo Show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. We are here to check out the dark side of DC. We're going to recap and review some Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. I thought you meant the big three issues we're going to be reading today. No, we're here to talk about the big three automakers. <laughs> You've done that joke on the show already. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That <laughs> isn't a published episode. <laughs> well, yeah, we have three issues here, which are normal in physical size, but are quite dense with wonderful stuff. So, let's get to it. Yeah, those issues are Sandman numbers 21, 22, and 67. What? Just kidding. 23. <laughs> I didn't read 67. No, me either. Not yet, anyway. So, we start with Sandman number 21, Season of Mists, a prologue. Or on the cover, Season of Mists, episode 0. Right, and should we talk about this cover a little bit? Well, yeah, this issue, like all the issues of the Sandman we've covered, is written by Neil Gaiman. In this issue, the pencils are by Mike Drinkenberg. That's a change, right? Because we had Kelly Jones for a while. We had Mike Drinkenberg for a long time. We had Kelly Jones for a while, and we're going to have Kelly Jones again. Okay, but for this issue, we're back to Drinkenberg. Yeah, this issue, Mike Drinkenberg, inks by Malcolm Jones III, cover by Dave McKeon. Now, these look kind of like uh, sculptures of heads. Yeah, there's like a platform that's a cup that's a face. It's a very strange cover. And there's also a book with a big X drawn over it. This is obviously the Book of Destiny, I suppose, in some sense. I thought maybe it was more like just Destiny, like, scratch out every day that has already passed with a big X, you know, Grover style. <laughs> and then he looks the infinite distance away into the end of the universe. And it's like, almost. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, there's like this face-shaped table. There's a great big book. The X is scrawled on the book is larger than the book. The X actually exceeds the boundaries of the book. Right. It's not drawn on the pages of the book. It is drawn over the book on the cover itself, almost. Yeah, now this one's not so formally framed as some of the ones we've seen before, although it does have the Episode Zero banner across the top and some text which reads, in which a family reunion occasions certain personal recriminations, assorted events are set in motion, and a relationship thought long done with proves to have much relevance today. Yeah. I think in which a family reunion occasions certain personal recriminations is the kind of film that would be directed by the Ray Fiennes character from Hail Caesar. I haven't seen Hail Caesar. Oh, you guys, that, that's pretty funny. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Okay. Yeah, when you told me at the very beginning of the series that there were going to be frames to every single cover, I, I, I think you've been proven wrong on that one. Yeah, okay. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. Apropos of nothing. Because <laughs> I lied about the covers, I guess. Oh, okay. Are you the trolls? <laughs> what? The ones I'm not supposed to be feeding? Oh, that, not that normally. You? Not normally. I try not to troll. I don't I don't like to troll. I will point out as we get started here, this is the first half, uh, first third to a half of the story arc entitled Season of Mists. Season of Mists comes from the first line of To Autumn by John Keats. Anyway, that brings us to page one, in which we learn about Destiny's Garden. Now, we've talked about Destiny before. He's one of the old DC horror hosts. He's the only one of the M's to be a pre-existing character. Right. Created by Marv Wolfman, Bernie Wrightson. First appeared in Weird Mystery Tales number one in 1972. Do you think uh, Marv Wolfman was a real wolf man? <laughs> I think we've done that joke on the podcast before, too. Well, greatest hits this week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
The narration explains something of the way the Destiny's Garden works. It's this sort of giant hedge maze, but as you walk the path, you are forced to choose many times. But, however, at the end of a lifetime of walking, you might look back and see only one path stretching out behind you. Yeah, it also says there's no escape even in death. That's right. The Garden of Destiny. You would know it if you saw it. After all, you will wander it until you die. Or beyond. For the paths are long, and even in death there is no ending to them. Setting up the idea of the afterlife, which will be very important for this story arc. Yeah, I like how some of the garden looks very classy and well manicured, but you also see that some of the columns have crumbled mm -hmm. and things like that. So we've got Destiny walking the garden here. He's a very tall man in a sort of gray or brown robe, bare feet, holding a book out before him. I can tell he's very tall. He's the only one on the page. I think he's supposed to be very tall. I guess you're right. I don't have a lot of perspective here. Fair enough. There's no, like, Tyrion for scale. Now, Destiny is walking in a part of the garden which looks like a big empty desert. Oh, he's okay, out of the so garden. he is tall in this one because he's taller than the panel. Yeah. Yeah, his head's bumping up over the top of the panel, and he encounters the Hecate. Yeah, gray ladies, three of them. Count them. One, two, three. Yep. At first I thought maybe he was walking on water, but that's dust, not water. Right. The Hecate <clears throat> tell him they are here because they must be, and they give him something of a prophecy. A king will forsake his kingdom. Life and death will clash and fray. The oldest battle begins once more. And all these things have their genesis here in your garden. Nothing begins in this place. This place is beyond beginnings and endings, Grey Women. As he says that, though, foregrounded against him in the panel, we have the hands of the Hecate holding a thread of life with its end visible. Now, was this issue recolored? That's a good question. I'm going to have to put that in the show notes. I don't actually know. All right. So, Destiny opens up his book, which contains the full story of everything that ever has happened or will happen. This actually looks distinctly shorter than The Wise Man's Fear. <laughs> just wrap that one up. <laughs> I've been waiting on that one for a while. <laughs> uh, he opens up the book and he reads it and then he knows what he must do. And so he does it. Destiny has to call a family meeting. And yeah, we get a big splash page here, which is also our title page. It says Season of Mists, a prologue, and we get the same text that was on the cover. And we get a nice page of Destiny's gallery. Yeah, Destiny goes into his gallery. We can see once again that one of the spaces is blank, as we've seen before in the galleries. Interestingly here, you know that Endless generally have a sigil for each one in their galleries. He doesn't. He has very detailed and accurate paintings. Yes. That's right. And he uses these paintings to call up all the Endless, or all but one, the prodigal who does not show up. Double cheeseburgers. <laughs> you think we can get a, a guess on what that D is going to be for once a week until we get there? I think you might have actually already told me, but I forgot. Okay. Death is the first one summoned. She appears in a formal black dress as she steps out of the painting, and then she's immediately in jeans and a ripped-up vest. Very punk look. And then, at Destiny's request that her outfit is not formal enough, she switches to an Edwardian black dress. Yeah, and her hair is kind of spiky here. Very new romantic. She's kind of annoyed by being asked to dress formally. 
You know how much I hate wearing that stuff. Next thing you're going to be moaning that I ought to get a scythe. And the second one he calls is Dream, a.k.a. the star of the book, a.k.a. the Crimson Pirate. He does look very piratical on this page. I actually wrote that down. It says, Dream looks like a pirate. He's got a trefoil hat and a surcoat, and as he steps out of the painting, he addresses Death. You have dressed formally also, I see. My compliments. Yeah, and she sticks her tongue out at him. That's a nice bit. Yeah, this is, this is good stuff. And he mentions that it's the first family meeting since the prodigal announced their intention to leave. Did you say that already? No, I haven't said that. That's well, important. Well, now it's out there. It's in podcast land for all the folks to listen to. Desire shows up in a corset and assless chaps. Is that really what happens? No, that's literally what happens. Oh, my goodness. That's the way that Desire attends a formal event. And Despair turns up naked, as usual. Yep. Looking like nothing quite so much as a sumo wrestler. Yeah, we've met Desire and Despair before. Desire is kind of unearthly beautiful, but at the same time androgynous. Despair is short, rotund, and has tusks. Ah, I see those tusks. Kind of. Death would really like the prodigal to attend, but Destiny says that he's not going to make it. Yeah, and then he calls on the youngest of them. And I don't think... I know who this is. Her name is given, but not right away. But it has we haven't seen her before. I think this is her first appearance. Or established her name before. I believe this is her first appearance, the first mention of her name. I can check that. This is the youngest of the endless delirium. She has orange hair and is wearing ripped fishnets. And is that a leotard? Yeah. That's right. And incidentally, does not match her painting at all. She's depicted in the painting as a beautiful young woman with blonde hair, blue dress, perfectly polished look, whereas she looks very much off her guard as she actually appears. Yes, that's right. And we find out that she actually used to be known as Delight. That's right. And be an entirely different sort of creature. Now, all of Delirium's speech bubbles are in sort of a strange multicolored swirl, and all of them contain absolute nonsense. Uh, yesterday I did some really bad stuff. I mean, real bad, you know? But today, I did some good things. I don't know. You know? I thought maybe Delirium was making fun of a stereotypical teenager at first. Mm, okay, right. Sort of putting on a disaffected affect? Yeah, maybe something like that. Now, at this point, to get to know the Endless better, we break into outright narration. Yes, that's right. It just gives us little back-of-the-action-figure files on... Little little Xavier files on each of these characters. Exposition superimposed over little black-and-white images of each one. Right. So, what I learned from these are that, A, that Desire and Despair are twins. Mm -hmm. That Despair has no odor, but her shadow smells pretty bad. Hmm. We are told that to see Desire is to love him or her, and that there is much that is knife-like about Desire. Nah, it's a little too poetical for my taste. Huh. I mean, I think Gaiman is having some fun here. Like, obviously he's enjoying describing these characters, and he's enjoying the fact that as embodied concepts... 
they can be described in ways that you can describe them, but you could never actually notice them. Hmm. Fair enough. Do you understand what I'm getting at there? I think so. Yeah, these aren't descriptions that you could have come up with yourself, but they're all apt. Yeah. We learn that despair looks out on the world through every mirror. And we learn that despair was once worshipped by a sect who all committed suicide within two years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The last one lasted seven months longer than all their friends. Right. And we learn that destiny is tall. Destiny is also the tallest of the endless, to mortal eyes. We also learn about Destiny that he may be blind, or he may see all. It's unclear whether he actually reads his book or simply knows what it says. Destiny smells of dust and the libraries of night. He leaves no footprints, he casts no shadow. Delirium, as we have mentioned, is the youngest and was once delight. I like this line. The poet Coleridge claimed to have known her intimately, but the man was an inveterate liar, and this isn't so much we must doubt his word. <laughs> yeah. And she has mismatched eyes. I also like this description of Dream. Dream accumulates names like others make friends, but he has few friends. <laughs> right. And actually most of Dream's blurb is spent talking about death. Or at least we learn more about death from it than we learn about Dream. He heard long ago in a dream that one day in every century death takes on mortal flesh. Better to comprehend what the lives she takes must feel like to taste the bitter tang of mortality, that this is the price she must pay for being the divider of the living from all that has gone before, from all that must come after. And indeed, Death's Mortal Day is actually the subject of the limited series, Death, the High Cost of Living. Well, shit, spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry. And then on Death's little blurb, there's only four words, and then there is Death. No description of her is given whatsoever. And she's smiling. Yeah. I want to mention this description, too, of Dream. Of all the endless, save perhaps Destiny, he is most conscious of his responsibilities, the most meticulous in their execution. Seems like Death is on the job all the time. Well, every time we yeah, see I suppose that's true. But I do think that preoccupation with his role and his responsibilities is something that we have seen with Morpheus and that we will see again. So it's fairly blunt exposition, but I believe it. Seen it already? So this brings us to Destiny's seven-sided table. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's a good feng shui. Me either. Destiny explains why he has brought everyone here. He met the Hecate. They told him something would cause much upheaval, and that something is this meeting. And that is all he'll say on it. I have told you all that I tell you. He simply instructs them to talk. Dream is irritated by this and makes to leave right away. That will not happen yet. Death wants him to hang around. They hardly ever get to spend time together as a family. Have a grape! I do not want a grape. I could make you want one, Desire adds. And there's a little bit of business here in which Delirium conjures some butterflies. Desire causes them to want the flame of the candle on the table which makes them death's butterflies. Right. So Desire, with its comment, I could make you want them, is sort of poking at Dream a little bit. And he is already pissed off at Desire. Yeah. For good reason. Yeah, there's a couple of hints here. Desire is really starting every available fight 
it's also picking on delirium. How so? Desire first steals the butterflies, and then... Isn't that right, Delight? Delight was a long time ago. Oops, silly me. Don't laugh at me, Desire. Don't make fun of me. I know what you think about me, but I know things none of you know. I know lots of things. Things about us. Things not even he knows. Do you? And she gestures to Destiny. I thought that was an interesting idea. The idea that Delirium knows things Destiny doesn't. Right. Things that cannot be safely known, I would think. Well, and it sort of reminds me of how, like, Dream is, you know, the king of all that isn't. Yeah. I think maybe Delirium has has some truths that aren't exactly facts. Right. Mm-hmm. Knowledge that is not truth, and therefore is the realm of Delirium. Right, exactly. Now, Desire turns on Dream. How's your love life? Killed any girlfriends recently? Or sentenced any more of them to hell? Now that's some free direct reference to the business that they've had of late. Right. Killed any girlfriends refers to Rose the Vortex, who Desire seemed to have hoped to make Dream fall in love with before he was forced to kill her. Yeah, and it seems like maybe Dream knows that it was Desire that set that series of events in motion. Oh, I think so. Remember they had that confrontation at the end of the story arc. Right. And the other part of that sentence is a reference, of course, to Nada. Desire also makes a passing reference here to a girlfriend that Morpheus had in Greece. That would be Calliope, who we met in issue number 17. Right. She says Carousel. <laughs> yes. What was her name? Carousel? Something like that? Yeah, now this is the first real issue since A Doll's House, in a way. Yeah, that's right. We've spent four issues in some kind of standalone stories. Right, and I think one of them was a flashback to the 1500s. One of them, Morpheus wasn't in. That's right. One of them he was in only in flashback. That's Dream of a Thousand Cats. And then there's Calliope. Yeah. Okay, so this is the second issue since A Doll's House for Morpheus. Sure, yeah. So, Desire continues to pick at the Nada scab, reminding Dream what he did to Nada. The very short version is, he dated this woman back at the beginning of time. She knew that it was not for mortals to marry the Endless, so she turned him down by committing suicide, and he damned her to hell. We saw all this back in issue number nine, which was the prologue to the doll's house. Yeah, and we also... We were introduced to Nada even earlier than that. That's right, on Morpheus's visit to hell, which was in Sandman issue number four. Yeah, that's right. Sandman issue number three was John Constantine. Yeah, he meets John Constantine. But we talk about Sandman issue number four kind of a lot, and we usually get it wrong and call it three, but it was a fantastic issue, frequently referenced by yeah. us. There was a, an awesome poetry slam. There was one of Morpheus's iconic lines referring to the ability of the prisoners of hell to dream, and, of course, loads of cool monsters drawn by St. Pete. Right. Now, Desire also makes reference on this page to um, that female on... What's that pretty plane with all the twinkly lights? You know where I mean. What you put her through wasn't pretty at all. And I didn't get that reference. That is a very subtle reference, and I'm not sure it's referring to anything, but we might come back to it. All right, fair enough. Dream excuses himself for some air, and death follows. 
yeah, we get a really cool panel of him leaving the table. This just looks great. With the table in the background under the archway, the light pouring out into the darkness. Yeah, as he walks away dressed like a fucking pirate. <laughs> yeah, if you're ever going to leave somewhere in a huff, do it dressed as a fucking pirate. There's also a little bit of business here in which death actually threatens desire to make desire shut up. And we have a downtrodden looking desire panel. Yeah, that's really well drawn also. And on the next page, we get Morpheus looking out over the spiral pathways of the garden. Yeah, it seems that the paths appear one way when he looks at them from a certain angle, and then they seem to change if he looks at them from another angle. See panel one and two? Mm-hmm. So this kind of reminded me of how the paths change in the, uh, in the narration on page one. Yeah, so Death comes out to talk to Dream, and he's really irritated at Desire. He's really unhappy with the suggestion that he acted unjustly in the Nada matter. Dream says, Destiny had not intervened. I would have. And Death says, yeah, well, it's probably a good job that Destiny did intervene then. I mean, Desire was just trying to get you going, trying to upset you. Wasn't that obvious? And it made me wonder if Desire was trying to provoke Dream into killing yet. That's an interesting thought. Well, there was something to do with Rose Walker. That's right. Now, Desire had, back in 1916, I think? Yeah, somewhere around uh, there. Had raped Unity Kincaid, resulting in the birth of Miranda and then her daughter, Rose. They were, they were family blood and had Morpheus killed Rose as he thought he would have to because she was becoming the Dream Vortex. He would have spilled family blood. Right, and that's really significant for some reason. It seemed to me... I had the idea that maybe Desire was trying to provoke Dream into spilling family blood again. Yeah, that makes sense. This seems to be Desire's long-term goal, uh, for reasons that we don't quite know yet. Well, Death rather surprises Dream by saying, Desire was right. What? Well, maybe not about everything, but right about Nada anyway. You did a terrible thing to that poor girl. You acted appallingly. You too? Even you turn on me, my sister? Oh, just shut up and let me finish. You can shout at me afterwards. She goes on to say that Nada really loved Dream, although that may have been the work of Desire, and that Nada was right to dump him, that the Endless are bad news for mortals. Well, what she actually says is, it is bad news for us to get involved with them. So, mortals are bad news for Endless as well. Anyway, condemning her to an eternity in hell just because she turned you down, that's a really shitty thing to do. Yeah, that sums it up. That was, <laughs> that was our feeling on the matter as well. Yeah, death is not wrong here. Yeah, and, and by extension, desire is not wrong here. She picked a good angle to attack Dream from. Mm -hmm. You know, she might be trying to pick a fight for nefarious ends, but she's, she's got good ammunition. Yeah, she cuts precisely. I should say it. Yes, that, that's right. The pronoun desire is appropriately in it. And again, that's something that is clearly established in the narration. Dream says, Is this how you feel, truly, that I have not behaved fittingly, that I have been unjust? Yes. Very well, then. My course is clear. And we see his resolved face. He has decided to return to hell and rescue Nada. I had not wished to return to hell. Not yet. 
Lucifer morning star is not one to forgive a slight, nor to forget an injury. But if I have committed a wrong, then I have but one course. It must be made right. And as he says this, he puts on his totally dope pirate hat. Yeah, he looks motherfucker. He spends a lot of the time in this issue looking pretty awesome. So, just a quick reminder back in Sandman number four, Morpheus had, after he had recovered his helmet from hell, Lucifer didn't want to let him leave. And Morpheus said, what power has hell if those imprisoned within cannot dream of heaven? Forcing Lucifer to let him go and sort of embarrassing him in front of the other demons. Yeah, and Lucifer vowed to destroy him. Right. And then, though it might mean my doom, I must journey to hell. Death tells him, don't do anything stupid. I am afraid it is too late for that admonition, but I shall do my best. I can do no more. Either I shall bring Nada out of hell, or I shall see you again soon, my sister. See you for one final time. When he dies, that would be the implication. But he can't actually die. I mean, he's endless. Right. So Death wipes her tears and goes back to the table to tell everyone where he's gone. Idiot. She suggests they stay and talk more, but Destiny says there's no point. He is returning to hell. It has begun. Yeah, and my question was, has it begun all according to Desire's plan? Maybe it was trying to manipulate Dream into killing it, but maybe its plan was exactly this. To send him back to hell to face Lucifer's revenge? Right. Maybe so. I think we can agree that Destiny doesn't really have a long-term plan here. Destiny is a neutral agency in this. Oh yeah, that's that's for sure true. He only wants to make happen what has to happen. Desire, for her that it represents perhaps, you know, impulsiveness. I think it's impulsivity. Impulsivity? I think that might be the word. Well, fair enough. You see what I'm saying here, though. Desire has the ability to make creatures want things. Desire represents... Desire represents wants that maybe should not be acted on immediately, and often are. But desire itself plans a long way out. Hmm. So that was an interesting issue. Got to meet six of the Endless all in one place. Yeah, only one of them for the first time, though. That's Delirium? Right. And, and maybe, got... maybe Destiny. Maybe we're meeting Destiny for the first time. I think this is Destiny's first appearance in this series. Or at least his first interaction with the other characters. First speaking appearance. Right. Yeah. And there are a bunch of interesting characters. Play off of each other in interesting ways. Each one kind of has their idiosyncrasies in the way that they speak and act. Yeah, I, I think some of them are more interesting than others. Fair enough. Which ones did you not find that interesting? I didn't find Despair and Delirium that interesting. Okay. I think that Desire and Death and Dream all interacted with each other in ways that are consistent with the relationships we've already seen. Those are the ones we've spent the most time with. Yeah, that's right. Despair didn't get to do much. Delirium had a lot of dialogue showing off her sort of detachment from reality. And her cool-looking text bubbles. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what do you think of Delirium in the sense that she's... Essentially a character suffering a mental disability. She's essentially an insane character. I guess I'd just have to see how she fits into a larger story. As a puzzle piece in a bigger picture. It's possible she could be used well, but 
at this point, you know, I just, I don't see where that would be. At this point, you feel like we have the barest taste of the character. Well, that's, that's a fair way to put it. Okay. I, I do think there's the interesting relationship that Desire seems to know that it can pick on Delirium and draw the ire of Dream and Death. Yeah, are they both older than Destiny? I mean, sorry, are they both older than Desire? Yeah, Destiny, Death, Dream are the first three. Okay. Remember, there was a line in Doll's House about the Elder Three do not partake in our games. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. And we don't know where the Prodigal fits in. Right. Okay. That brings us to Sandman issue number 22. Season of Mists, chapter 1 in which the Lord of Dreams makes preparations to visit the realms infernal. Farewellzer said, Ooh, Greengrocer's apostrophe. A toast is drunk, and in hell the adversary makes certain preparations of his own. And the cover art here is Nada. And in addition to that comprehensible text that you just read us, there's also incomprehensible text. Right, a lot of old Latin or German biblical text superimposed over the face here. Yeah, and there's a frame. This time we get a frame. That's right. Okay, the greengrocer's apostrophe is only on the cover. It's not inside the issue. Well, I blame Dave McKeon for this, apparently. I feel like I should explain the extreme grammatical nitpick that I'm making here. The greengrocer's apostrophe is when you put an apostrophe in a plural. It usually connotes possessive. Before the S of a plural is an inappropriate place for one. But Sean, I know that already. Yeah, but I feel like if I'm going to sit here and nitpick the comic book, I should make it clear what I'm nitpicking about. <laughs> All right, well, that uh, brings us to hell. Yeah, so it's sort of loosely established over the next page of narration that hell exists because mortals believe in it, and the demons exist to torture damned souls. It was not considered a pleasant place by the majority of its inhabitants. However, being dead, and being there, as they imagined, against their will, their opinions counted for little. Yeah, that, as they imagined, might be the three most interesting words on the page. Mm -hmm. This is some pretty gory art here, and not in a way that I found particularly awesome. Oh, I should mention that this issue we have switched back to Pencils by Kelly Jones, inks by Malcolm Jones III. Right, no Dringenberg here. Yeah, there's a number of tortured souls. I feel like Kelly Jones's demons have a lot of the time a sexual connotation. That's kind of the way that he gets to squickiness. Hmm. Well, like, here's a giant monster with bare breasts with mouths where its nipples should be. Yeah, that's the only one on the page, though. I mean, I guess there's a guy being impaled here. That's... All the torturees are naked, too. I don't remember if that was consistent with Keith's vision. Right. Well, there's a guy being impaled here that's kind of Freudian, I guess. Mm, okay. But what I was saying, though, is that a lot of this... It's gory, but not in like a, like an awesome art way. I think some of the humans... Obviously, the demons are anatomically twisted. Mm -hmm. But some of the humans seem to be anatomically incorrect, too, in ways that don't necessarily seem intentional. The first damned that we see has sort of a very long body with some kind of pockmarks. Is that what you're pointing out? No, the guy being impaled seems to have some some muscles in the wrong places. Mm, okay. The, the rib cage is way too large for the rest of the body. I see. Things like that. Okay. 
Well, I want to call out the line, however, they were all agreed on one thing. This was as bad as it got. It couldn't get any worse. And this page basically sets the stage as to Hell's purpose, the reason it exists, stuff that will become important over the rest of the story arc. Yeah, that page actually might have done better in issue three, where we get much more of that. Ah, okay, where more time is spent in Hell. Right. Right, okay, so we find ourselves back in the Dreaming, specifically Lucian's library. Yeah, where Lucian is putting away a stack of books, and he is talking to Matthew. Right, now we've met these guys before. Lucian is Dream's librarian, and Matthew is his raven messenger. Right. And Lucian is explaining to Matthew that the library contains every story ever dreamed. There's a huge annex dedicated to books that were never actually written, which is where they are currently sitting. And we see a bunch of the books that were never written. These include Unwritten Tales by Charles Dickens, Arthur Conan Doyle, G.K. Chesterton, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Erasmus Fry, who we met back in number 17. What's the Tolkien one? The Lost Road. Hmm. I was never a big reader, to be honest, says Matthew. I was more a man of action when I was alive. That's funny. I don't remember him doing much. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, and I like that Matthew quotes, Nevermore, being a raven. And then he points out that he's not referring to the poem, which he has not read, but to the Roger Corman movie. Is that the raven? Yeah. I think I saw that once. Vincent Price reads the whole poem at the beginning. Oh, yeah? I think so. That's a way to begin a movie, I suppose. Roger Corman Vincent Price did a bunch of Edgar Allan Poe movies together. As well as The Haunted Castle, I think it is, which is actually not even a Poe. That's the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, interesting. Anyway, Morpheus appears and summons Lucian and Matthew. And in fact, he's actually summoning everybody. Right. As they make their way to the Great Hall, they encounter all the other denizens of the Dreaming and realize that he's summoned all of the dreams. Lucian's got a bit of dialogue here where he talks about Morpheus's power at the heart of the Dreaming. This is his castle, his seat of power at the heart of the Dreaming. In this place, he can do whatever he wishes. That's sort of a Michael Caine there. I try to think of Lucian as Michael Caine. That's pretty cool. So a witch flies by them on a broom, and she kind of looked like Zatanna to me. This, I believe, is the fashion thing. A creature that we have seen before who will never be of particular significance, but a witch that takes on various fashions of the times. Here she appears to be wearing a long blue or black coat and nothing else. Well, no, she's got the hat. Oh, yeah, that's true. She's got a hat. And so Zatanna doesn't wear pants either. She normally wears, like, fishnet tights, right? Right. Okay, so there's no fishnet tights there, but that could easily be an oversight in the art. I kind of thought it looked a lot like Zatanna. Fair enough. Hello. I thought I should talk to you. Talk to all of you. It seems I am going to have to leave this place. I may be away for quite a while. We get four different views of Morpheus on this page, and they're radically different. He looks like a member of the Beatles in the top left. Sort of a terrifying monolithic figure on the top right. Yeah, and then in the splash panel... He looks very much like Richmond from the IT crowd. <laughs> I don't know Richmond as he's sitting on his skull chair. 
No, that's a pretty creepy throne he's got there. Got a bunch of candles all over the back of the throne. Yeah. Yeah, and a big old Eye of Sauron at the top. He retells the story of what happened to Nada, which we've been over and we heard basically last issue as well. Right. But one thing he mentions that interested me... Well, first of all, he, he tells the story in a sort of... I don't want to say... It's not exactly flattering to himself. Okay. But he doesn't cast himself in the worst light either. He does mention here, it has been pointed out to me that I may have acted hastily, mistakenly, wrongly, that what I did was not honorable. So he's acknowledging that at least. That's sort of a change come over him since, just since the last issue. Yeah, he also says here that it's been two years since his escape from the Burgesses, which seemed like a long time to me. I mean, we're on issue 22, so that's it's actually less than two years in real time. It's more or less real time, although the stories themselves maybe take place over shorter periods. But then some not so much. I mean, I would say that Doll's House was a few weeks at least. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Morpheus explains that he's going to hell to rescue Nada and he may never be back. Matthew doesn't understand the danger. So Morpheus explains it, that two years ago while seeking his helmet, he pissed off Lucifer and Lucifer will be ready for him. Two years ago, I had cause to visit hell. My helmet was in the possession of a demon. I needed it. I wanted it back. I contended with Karanzan, the demon, and I won. They returned my helm. Unfortunately, in so doing, I incurred the enmity of Lucifer Morningstar, the Lightbringer. I humiliated him in front of all the demons of his domain. Now, you were saying that Morpheus can't really die because he's endless. He brings that up here. If I am destroyed, another aspect of Green will fill my shoes. I trust you all will make my reassumption of the role an easy one. Yeah, and he goes on to say that what he does not want, if he has to be gone for some time, is a repeat of what happened last time. <laughs> the people responsible for sacking the previous crew have been sacked. <laughs> yeah, he tells them not to let the dreaming fall apart like last time. Right, and oh, hey, there's that pumpkin dude. It's Mervyn Pumpkinhead. Mervyn Pumpkinhead? That's his name. Well, all right. And he tapers off in a really weird way, saying that it was unnecessary to tell them all this and that he doesn't want to worry them before he dismisses the crowd. Cheer up, says Matthew. It'll be fine. You'll see. It'll be fine. That's right. He dismisses everybody, and Matthew sticks around to cheer him up. So that's an interesting moment. Matthew asks about Lucifer, and we learn that Lucifer is not willed into being by human belief like the other demons, but he is a fallen angel created by his creator, who is spelled with a capital C. The creator. Yeah. Yeah, and when he was an angel, his name was Samael. Saving only his creator, he is perhaps the most powerful being there is. More powerful than you? Oh yes, by far. Well, at least you've got the element of surprise on your side. That would not be honorable, Matthew. I have already sent a messenger to the Lord of Hell to let him know that I will be coming. One must do these things properly. Smart, boss. Real smart. And that brings us to the messenger, who is in Hell right now, meeting with Lucifer. The messenger is Cain. Yeah, the way that Kelly Jones draws Cain is a really good copy of the way that we saw him drawn by Sam Keith in his 
original appearance. Well, I guess not his original appearance, since he's an old horror comic host, but his original appearance in this series. Back in Sandman number two, when we first met Cain and Abel. Right, yeah. Yeah, this is Cain. He's the first murderer, except he's really more the character Cain than the killer Cain. He does kill his brother Abel on the regular, and he's basically kind of an Edwardian gentleman in a nice, if old-fashioned suit, except that he loses his temper from time to time. Yeah. Oh, and he's he's basically a gnome also. He has, you know, long pointy ears and is pretty short. Now, a couple of things I wanted to point out on this page. First of all, upper right panel, that Lucifer face. Now that is the sort of crappy face drawing <laughs> <laughs> that you expect from Kelly Jones if you've read the Magneto limited series. <laughs> oh, man. This is like this is like the most Bowie face that we've ever seen for Lucifer, right? Like he's making a weird face in it. He's got his eyes closed and is kind of smiling. Yeah. But it really looks like a photo of Bowie. Yeah, maybe the fault here is actually not with Jones, but with Jones. It could be the inking, but it looks like he's wearing black lipstick. He is. Oh, I see. Because his mouth is a dark expanse with his shiny white teeth in the middle. Right. Which is practically the drinking game for this show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. This is also the first page, I believe the first page, on which we see a female demon with a half-rotted face. Mazakine. Right, we're not given a name yet. But she has one half of her face intact, the other falling to pieces with no skin, except for, on the far end of it, an ear, which is completely intact. And, and wearing an earring. <laughs> and has an earring hanging from it, yeah. I like that Cain starts to deliver his message with sort of maximum pomp and circumstance, and after a moment Lucifer stops him. No, not the message, just the content. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, from the Lord of the Dream World, Prince of Stories, Monarch of the Sleeping Marches, his darkness dream of the endless, to his infernal majesty Lucifer, called Morningstar, greetings, our right trusty and well-beloved cousin. Wow, he has more titles than Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> and after Lucifer tells him to shut up, the revised version of the message is, he is coming here. He hopes you will allow him access to your realm, but whether you will or no, he is coming there. Yeah, now at this point, they talk a little bit about how Cain is under protection. The protection of one far greater than the Lord of Dreams. Lucifer recites the biblical verse, And the Lord said unto him, Therefore whoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And as he does, Lucifer lifts up Cain's hair to reveal a ring on his forehead, the mark of Cain. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden, where you still live, eh? That was interesting to me, because that made me think, is the land of Nod supposed to be the dream world? The land of Nod is sometimes a phrase used to describe being asleep, right? Yeah. Being in the land of Nod. Yeah, so that makes sense. Basically here, the demons... It's a very good pun. <laughs> Basically here, the demons want to kill Cain, but of course... He's protected by the one more powerful even than Lucifer, so they can't. They have an interesting discussion here about Cainites. Mm -hmm. They believed that we created the heaven and the earth, and that you were the persecuted party in that unfortunate affair with your brother. They also held that the way to salvation was to give way to lust and temptation in all things. 
and no greater percentage of them turned out here than of any other religion. Amusing, isn't it? So, Lucifer is excited that Morpheus is coming back, and that brings us to a baby. Yes, Lyda's kid has been born. Yeah, he's only a week old, and he doesn't even have a name yet. We get this description from Lyta's friend Carla. He looks just like a baby, sort of bald and just boiled. I should say he just looks like a baby, not he looks just like a baby. He is not a convincing facsimile of a baby. <laughs> yeah, that's a baby. We learned that Lyta hasn't been able to settle on a name. We also learned that Lyta basically has nothing going on in her life except this baby. Money's not an issue, and she doesn't want to go back to costumed heroing since the baby is depending on her. Yeah, and she also says it wouldn't be the same without her husband, Hector the Sandman. Right, Hector was the Golden Age Sandman created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, who got killed. Well, he was already dead. He was a ghost that Morpheus banished, and Lyta blames Morpheus for it. Yeah, and she's not entirely wrong here. Morpheus has been shitty to her. Not so much in his treatment of Hector, but in his claim that the baby belongs to him. So she is understandably alarmed when he walks in the door. Yeah, well, actually, he just appears in the room, right? Like, she lets Carla out of the house, and when she gets back to the baby's room, there he is. Yeah, right. Figuratively speaking, walks in the door. I want to point out here that she warns him not to touch the baby, which he immediately does anyway. It is unusual for a child to gestate in dreams. It has not happened for so long. A child formed in my realm. The baby looks kind of worried and a lot like an old man in that thing. Well, all babies look like old men, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So he's just here to see the baby, and she says, Fine, you've seen him. Now get out. Very well. Good afternoon, Hippolyta. By the way, his name is Daniel. She looks down at her son and says, Daniel? So I guess when the god of stories names something, it sticks, huh? Or that just was the name. Right. He just happens to already know it. On the next page, we find Dream doing his dream-snatching thing again. Always a fan of that. Right. He has one more person that he needs to go speak to, and apparently he can only find them in dreams. He snatches a rare bottle of wine from the dreams of a vintner in France. Are we supposed to know the name Cecily Latour, or is that just... I don't think so. And he goes to visit Hob Gadling. Now, Hob is the guy who's been alive since the 1300s, because Death and Dream made a bet as to whether he would still want to live forever after trying it a while. Yeah. He's one of Morpheus's few friends. They came to the agreement back in his previous appearance that they were friends. And we find Hob in a dream where he has to fix Queen Elizabeth I's computer, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, that was good. Hob, might I intrude? Good lord, it's you. You're a bit early, aren't you? I thought you weren't due for another 99 years. Hang on, Queen Bess, a computer, you? Bloody hell, I'm dreaming, aren't I? Yes, you're dreaming, Hob. And yes, I am early. I have brought you a gift. Chateau Lafitte, 1828? I didn't think there was a bottle of that stuff left on Earth. I doubt there is. But a few bottles remain in dreams. He tells Hob that he's going on a long journey, and he may not make it to their next meeting. And Hob is kind of intimidated by the idea of a journey so long that Morpheus thinks it's a long journey. 
Yeah, um, also, the fact that he's 99 years early, that means that it's been a year since a doll's house. Yeah, just about. I like that Hob asks if it's Morpheus's birthday, and Morpheus replies, you must be born to have a birthday. So they pour the wine, and they drink a toast. Just in case Morpheus can't make their next meeting, their next scheduled meeting. Yeah, Hob thinks they should make a toast, and so he comes up with one, although he sort of doesn't know where it came from. To absent friends, lost loves, old gods, and the season of mists, and may each and every one of us always give the devil his due. So you got a title drop there, and you also have an allusion to the devil getting his due. That's right. And Morpheus finally admits that he's procrastinated enough and prepares for his journey. We find Lucifer dangling cane by his hair over hell, talking about demons. He mentions a recent failed coup by Etrigan. Yeah, I wondered if that was Etrigan. He said a little yellow rhymer. And Etrigan is yellow and does speak in rhyme. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know the Etrigan issues that correspond with this reference. Yeah, I wonder if that's a thing that actually happened in the books. Lucifer says that demons think themselves as equal, but he only counts one as being his superior, the creator. Right, and that fits with what Dream said earlier about how there's only one being that has more power than Lucifer. Yeah. Still, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. We didn't say it. Milton said it. And he was blind. And with that, he sends him back to the Dreaming. Lucifer turns and addresses all the demons of hell. It's been ten billion years since they came here. Tells them that Morpheus is coming, and adds, The news of his visit has crystallized certain matters we have been pondering for millennia. I also noted here that he refers to himself as first among the fallen. You know, the first of the fallen is actually a different ruler of hell. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's right. From Hellblazer. So, yeah, he says that in this place... Nothing changes. Everything's eternal. But this day in hell, this day you shall all remember forever. And so shall he. Not really a big fan of Lucifer's screaming face on this page. That is drawn so badly. I hated it. Yeah, he takes on a lot of different facial aspects over the course of this issue. He'll be drawn more consistently in the next one, I think. Also want to point out that we have Nada reacting to the speech on the bottom of this page. Right, yeah, with a tear... Rolling down her cheek. So we find Cain back in the dreaming, terrified. He he didn't care about my mark. He just didn't care. He thought it was funny. Rest, my servant. You have done well. Lucian begs Morpheus to reconsider. Well, you gotta but... read it. You gotta do that, Michael Cain. My lord, I beg you to reconsider. Please, it isn't too late. We do what we must, Lucian. Sometimes we can choose the path we follow. Morpheus puts on his helmet. Sometimes our choices are made for us, and sometimes we have no choice at all. Goodbye, Lucian. He's doing an amazing pose here as he throws one arm up and one arm back to go through the portal to hell. Yeah, he sort of prances right on through. Yeah, and uh, he's stepping into this portal that looks like a just a splotch of stars on the wall, and Lucian says, Farewell, my lord. Yeah, and the art on this page is a really terrific Sam Keith impression. So, there we have a full issue of Morpheus preparing to go to hell and face whatever Lucifer has in store for him. A full issue of procrastination. (laughs) You could call it preparation, charitably. Yeah, I I think it's important to see how Morpheus faces death with a lowercase d. Right. I mean, 
it was pretty noble how he like immediately made up his mind. Like, yeah. this is what I have to do, then this is what I have to do. And he hasn't questioned it since. Yeah, that's true. He's he's resolved, and it seems like he resolved quite firmly as soon as he realized it was the right thing to do. As soon as it was pointed out to him. Yeah, now this is not a character who always cares about the right thing. But he definitely seems to care about his honor. Yeah, perhaps I should call it the just thing. Because it's not necessarily the thing that will have the positive results that he's concerned about. It's whether he has done something wrong. And once he finds that he has, he feels he has to fix it. Right. I think he also really cares about Death's opinion of him. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know, she's his closest confidant among the Endless. Well, among anybody, really. Yeah. And and so when she thinks that he's done wrong, he takes notice. But do you think that this story slowed down the story arc too much to have a full issue of his preparations to go to hell? No, I thought this was a really good issue. As a matter of fact, I, I think that the way that this is developing so slowly is really, it's adding to the epic feel of this story. Hmm, okay. You know, you can't, he doesn't just... He doesn't just make a little day trip down to hell <laughs> like he did back in issue four. Yeah. You know, at least if you're reading it in the trade, that this story arc is going to be all of eight issues. Mm-hmm. And so the way that it slowly builds and the, and the length that you know it's going to have is really contributing to an epic feel. Yeah, and so now we have had a lot of time to anticipate Lucifer's plan for revenge. Yeah, and we'll get to anticipate it a lot more <laughs> before uh, before we actually see it take shape. Sandman number 23, Season of Mists, Chapter 2, Gaiman, Jones, and Jones. In which the Lord of Dreams returns to Hell, and his confrontation with the Lord of that realm, in which a number of doors are closed for the last time, and concerning the strange disposition of a knife and a key. The cover here is a stylized face of Lucifer, I think. Could be. I thought maybe it was Nada again, just a little closer. Hmm, okay. It's framed on both sides by sort of some towers. Yeah, and there seems to be some some bloody gunk. Yeah. Maybe red wax, I'm not sure. It's a cover by Dave McKeon. It's a pretty typical style. Well, we have Morpheus flying in the nowhere between places with his helmet on and his Cape cast up in his best Batman impression. <laughs> yeah, it's a raggedy old cape, though. He sort of briefly considers staying in the nowhere and hiding, but he doesn't. He arrives in hell. Yeah, I like how he talks about the, the cold wind between worlds. I am so cold, he says. This is not a place. It's between places. But when he arrives in hell, the wind dies back signaling the transition from nowhere to where. Already the mists are parting. Welcome to hell, I tell myself, and I am afraid. To his surprise, he finds the main gate standing open, and he enters. Yeah, now, we get a two-page spread here, and this is the title page also, but a two-page spread here of the main gate of hell. And this struck me, I think for the first time, although it... It's not the first time that this has been true, but maybe just the first time that I noticed it. That the way some of this stuff is drawn is very H.R. Geiger-like. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, the gate itself looks like the, like the skeleton of some great being. 
There's a skull with horns and teeth at the top of this end, and a spine running down the skull and down the chest. Right, yeah, there's also all sorts of towers protruding at odd angles with... Everything's ribbed. Yeah, everything is ribbed and faintly biological. The way his helm is drawn looks much the same way. Yeah. Now, once again, he points out basically that he could have taken a sneaky route, but he didn't. He says he's here in a formal capacity, so he has to use the main gate. The landscape of hell is mutable, if one has authority. And I have certain authority even here. Warily, I feel for the place I seek. Nada is held in the cliffs that circle Weepnot, in a barred cell carved from rock, lined with needle-sharp shards of volcanic glass. There is no food or water in that place. I suppose she must be hungry. She must have been hungry for a long time. That's sort of a neat moment of empathy from Morpheus, albeit 10,000 years late. Yeah. I also thought it was cool that there's a place in hell called Weepnot. Yeah, that's very flavorful. Yeah, so he gets to this crazily drawn cliff, and by cliff I mean like this is just an unsustainable tower of cells piled upon cells. It doesn't look exactly like the way it was when we saw it before. No, I mean this isn't a cliff you can walk along the way that he and Etrigan were back in issue number four. But nonetheless, you recognize Nada's cell when he comes to it. He looks inside, and it is empty. Nada. <laughs> That's, that's how he said it. He throws his arms up in the air and shouts, Fools! <laughs> <laughs> no, he shouts, Nada! He thinks that they've taken her or hidden her, and then he realizes something else is wrong. I listen, silence, pure and dead. There's no screams. They're all gone. All the damned, all the demons. What trickery is this? And then he... Much of the same way he was like, Nada, Nada! Now he's like, Lucifer? Lucifer! Yes. Lucifer appears, and he wants Morpheus to take his helmet off so they can talk, and Morpheus is really reticent to do that, and so Lucifer gives his promise that he won't harm Morpheus well in hell, and Morpheus takes his helmet off. Yeah, and the way he's drawn here looks very different from the sort of, like, beautiful blonde Lucifer that were used to. Yeah, he's sort of much more masculine and ebullient in this issue. And there's this panel at the lower right where he looks exactly like Kefka as he's got this big grin. Yeah, he does look like Kefka. It's the sunken eyes with the shadow around them. So Morpheus wonders what the hell's going on, and Lucifer explains. Isn't it obvious? I've quit. The other line that I liked on this page is, why sweet Morpheus, are you afraid of me? <laughs> and Morpheus replies, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, the next page gives us three reaction shots of Morpheus. He sort of does a, hey! Huh? Hey! <laughs> yeah, he's got an about-to-speak face twice in there with a pause for a reflection in the middle. And Lucifer actually notices this. Honestly, Morpheus, you need not stare at us, at me, rather, with that ridiculous expression on your face. I've written here, Morpheus is surprised for half a page. <laughs> and Lucifer, after all of last issue referring to himself as a we, is now referring to himself in the singular. He says that he'll explain, and he asks Morpheus basically to walk with him as he handles a few final errands. And so they do. Lucifer, it seems to go on forever. 
How big is hell? How big? It's vast. Even I couldn't say for certain exactly how vast. It's almost a meaningless question, like asking how big the Silver City is, or how many are the fields of paradise. This realm is heaven's shadow, remember? Or more precisely, perhaps, heaven's dark reflection. So, Lucifer has thrown out all of the damned from hell, but there's one sinner who refuses to leave, and so they are here to dynamite him out. <laughs> this is a guy named Breschau of Livonia, a cruel tyrant, who is sitting here chained from hooks all over his flesh into this rock, and he's basically bragging about his crimes. Yeah, he's sort of being stretched out, and he spends most of this page trying to convince them how evil he is, and I gotta say, I believe it. He convinced me. All of his crimes sound pretty bad. Yeah, he's, he's a son of a bitch. Well, Lucifer's not so impressed, and he says, You killed a number of people who would by now be long since dead anyway. So what? Haven't you tortured yourself enough? And furthermore, he points out that not one mortal in a hundred thousand could point to where Livonia once was on a map. The world has forgotten you. Yeah, and Russia is... He's so clearly so proud of, you know, himself and of the punishment that he's earned that he's, he's loath to let go of it. Right, right. Breschau is apparently convinced and disappears. Morpheus asks, where has he gone? And Lucifer replies, away. Lucifer, I do not understand. But it's perfectly plain, Morpheus. It's over. So the next thing that they go to do is there are three demons who refuse to leave yeah, and one of the demons is named Ketel. Okay. And doesn't doesn't believe it. Doesn't believe it's the real Lucifer. The real Lucifer wouldn't quit. Right, but Lucifer replies, the Lord of Hell will do what he damn well likes. And he throws them out. Now we have Lucifer and Morpheus walking along a beach, and Morpheus is asking how Lucifer can quit. He's seemingly stunned by the concept of it. How How can you even... Easy. Ten billion years I've spent in this place. That's a long time. And we've all changed since the beginning. Even you, Dream Lord, you were very different back then. Perhaps, Prince Lucifer. You can forget the honorifics. Rank never mattered to me, not really. But the demons expected it. Which is one reason I've quit. There are others. I'm tired, Morpheus. So tired. There's an interesting conversation on the next page as... Lucifer reminds Morpheus that they knew each other back when he was an angel, and he asks, what was I like? You were very proud, Samael, but you were also very beautiful, and wise, and passionate. This passionate is the one that sticks with Lucifer. He says that he used to care so much, and he doesn't anymore. I cared about so many things. I cared so deeply back then, in the cold beginning of things, in the Silver City. I suppose that was why everything began to go wrong. He wonders how much of his rebellion was part of God's plan. I thought I was rebelling. I thought I was defying his rule. No, I was merely fulfilling another tiny segment of his great and powerful plan. If I had not rebelled, another would have in my stead. Raguel, perhaps, or Sandalphon. Next, Lucifer goes around closing the remaining gates of hell, and he has this big elaborate key, uh, which we've actually been seeing in the first page after the title in each issue of this story arc. I'm sorry, it's, it's being used as the, um, as the interstitial between issues, between the end of one issue and the yeah, number in the of the in the trade paperback. We've been seeing this weird key that he uses to lock up all the gates of hell. Right, and we were told there would be a key. That's right. Ten billion years spent providing a place for dead mortals to torture themselves. 
and like all masochists, they called the shots. I thought that was a funny line. And he also complains about what it was like to have to rule a million demons. And above all, the fashion for intrigue. In the beginning, I enjoyed it. He explains that he's so powerful he could easily destroy any demon, but he enjoyed playing with them instead, manipulating them. But I grew weary, Dreamlord, mightily weary. I ceased to care. As he says this, he's locking the gate on what seems to be about a waist-high stone fence. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And then he goes on to complain about mortals. Why do they blame him for their petty failings? The devil made me do it. I have never made one of them do anything. Never. What's that from? The story where it like turns out that the devil didn't make people do anything, he just put ideas in their heads or something? I don't remember that specifically. Hmm. This really rung a bell with me, and I can't remember what it's from. Maybe it's Good Omens. I have not read Good Omens, so that may be true. I think Lucifer is drawing a very specific delineation of, of who and what he is right here. He's not the source of all evil. He's evil in the sense that he rebelled against God, and he's in hell because he's being punished for that. But hell exists so that people can torture themselves, basically. Basically, like he's here to torture the people who fail, but he doesn't think of himself, at least, as being the source of evil. Or the lord of evil. Yeah. And he feels, among other things, that he's been punished far too long for his crime of rebelling. Yeah. They talk of me going around and buying souls like a fishwife come market day, never stopping to ask themselves why. I need no souls. And how can anyone own a soul? No, they belong to themselves. They just hate to have to face up to it. When he says they belong to themselves, that reminded me of... It was just a couple of issues back when Dream said of Calliope. Yeah, she belongs to herself, if anyone. Right. So he's decided that he's leaving hell. Morpheus asks where the damned have all gone. And Lucifer says somewhere he doesn't really care where. Hell is over. Morpheus asks what he will do now, and Lucifer doesn't really know. He basically says he could go anywhere in the cosmos except back to paradise. Innocence, once lost, can never be regained. I could lie on a beach somewhere, perhaps, listen to music, build a house, learn how to dance or to play the piano. I thought it was funny that so many of his examples of things he might do revolved around music. The only yeah. thing I could think was that maybe he should go down to Georgia. <laughs> he's himself a fiddle player. <laughs> right. Morpheus has a panel here of being surprised that they're not going to fight. But your responsibilities. I have no responsibilities. Not anymore. Well, before the thing about being surprised they're not going to fight and the no responsibilities, he says that he owes his decision to Dream, which he never really explains. He says that Dream's return gave him the impetus to do something he should have done millennia ago. He's been thinking about quitting, and he decided to do it at this particular time when Dream was coming. Decided basically to incorporate it into his scheme for revenge. Right, and it really feels on this page like the other shoe is about to drop soon. So at this point, Mazakin shows up, and even though there's no hell, she insists that Lucifer is her master and that she loves him. Yeah, and we see here her knife. Looks like yeah, it's yeah. Her, her handing it to him, not the other way around. Yeah. I am uh, no longer your master, Mazakin, but you may love me if you wish, which I thought was a good line. Lucifer tells her she can't come with him, 
They'll be traveling alone. They have a kiss, and then he asks for her knife. Yeah, it's a really gross kiss. Oh, yeah, because half of her face is rubbed off. Yeah. And then he says, Goodbye, Mazakim. You are very beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was a funny line. He sends Mazakim away, and he hands the knife over to Morpheus. He needs Morpheus to cut off his wings. We were told there would be a knife. Yep, so we've seen the knife and the key. As Morpheus sets to the bloody work, he asks about Nada, the reason he came. Yes, I remember her. Where is she, Morningstar? Ah, ah, out there somewhere. There are so many of them. All my little disembodied refugees fluttering away through the dimensions. And what will they do on Earth, I wonder, when the dead start coming back? There's a neat panel here of Lucifer curled up in pain with his back spattered in blood from his wings. Yeah. And as he prepares to leave, he says, Oh, Morpheus, I swore once that I would destroy you, did I not? Yes, you did. Well, we are now outside the bounds of hell. He hands Morpheus the key. This is for you, Dream Lord. Take it. The key to hell? Exactly. It's yours now. Perhaps it will destroy you, and perhaps it won't. But I doubt it will make your life any easier. It's all yours now, Morpheus. You are the sole monarch of a locked and empty hell. Perhaps I ought to have given it to you with my best wishes. I could have told you that I hoped it would bring you happiness. But somehow, I doubt it will. And Morpheus brings it back to the beginning of the issue. I feel cold. I also want to point out that Lucifer is hiding his grin behind his hands here as he gives him the key. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the other shoe has finally dropped. The dead are going to be returning to Earth, which is a problem. I should say the damned are going to be returning to Earth. Right, not the good ones. <laughs> yeah. Etrigan is probably like the best dude down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he said the dead would be returning to Earth. He didn't say it was going to happen to the demons, which is a, sec a separate question. I really hope that Etrigan has to crash on Constantine's couch, and there's just a whole issue of domestic non-bliss. That would be kind of funny. But yeah, so it, it sort of seems like the other shoe has finally dropped, but at the same time, it's like, I think that there's more to it, you know? Yeah. It doesn't all come out in this issue. We're going to see, as the story arc goes on, exactly what challenges Lucifer has put in place for Morpheus. What the implications of being Lord of Hell are. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, as is typical for Sandman, it had to go in sort of an epic and literary direction other than a fight. <laughs> you know, it couldn't have been a situation where Morpheus comes back and is imprisoned in hell or, or fights Lucifer in hell, partially because he would lose. As basically clearly established, Lucifer would have the advantage almost anywhere and certainly in his own domain. Right. But also because that would be kind of a boring way for it to go. So we had a lot of anticipation building up to what the scheme was, and now we know sort of the hook, the scheme is that Morpheus is now Lord of Hell. Right. Now, I wondered if this is the spot where the Lucifer spinoff, if you want to call it that, or mm -hmm. maybe you should just call it the Lucifer ongoing series. I wonder if this is where it began. Yeah, he's going to appear again in this series, but I think that this really is the issue where 
sort of Neil Gaiman's Lucifer or DC's Lucifer became the character that we know. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about the Vertigo series Lucifer. I know that it exists. I know that it was an ongoing and it ran for a number of years. I know that it became a TV show, but that the TV show basically they just bastardized it into a cop procedural. It is a cop procedural. Maybe the comic book is a cop procedural too, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not. I doubt it. <laughs> I, I'm not an expert on the Lucifer series written for most of its length by Mike Carey, I think. Yes. But we got a lot of interesting exploration of the character of Lucifer in this issue. They kind of make the same point over and over that he's that he's tired of running hell and that hell isn't really something he wants so much as something that mortals demand exists and, and that hell is over. But we get a real sense of how he's become tired of his duties and how he's lost interest in being the Lord of Hell anymore. He's got an interesting combination of sort of pride and arrogance and weariness. Yeah, I thought that this issue presented a really good Gaiman-esque twist on the idea of hell. Mm -hmm. The idea of damnation and, you know, eternal torment. Yeah. Uh, have you read American Gods? Yes. Now, if I'm not mistaken, in American Gods, if I may spoil that book, at one point a major character dies and when he reaches the afterlife, he's basically asked what afterlife he wants. I can't say I remember that bit. Okay. But I think that's sort of a recurring game and thing is like what you believe or what you expect or what you want is what will happen to you in the afterlife. Yeah. There's also a really interesting contrast in this issue between Morpheus and Lucifer. Lucifer has decided to dump his duties as Lord of Evil, King of Hell, whatever, just go do what he wants. And Morpheus is really taken aback by that. Right. Yeah, that's not... The sort of thing he would ever do. Morpheus is really a creature who defines himself by his responsibilities. And, and Lucifer is playing on his sense of responsibility. Right. He knows that if he, he kicks all the damned and all the demons out of hell and then hands Morpheus the keys, that he is going to feel the need to, you know, set the whole thing straight again. At least I think that's where this series is probably going. Yeah, I think so. It was a sense of obligation that brought him here, his obligation to do right by Nada at long last. And and that's what's going to bind him to the interesting complications that come from having possession of hell as well. So two issues ago, I was wondering if everything was playing into Desire's plan. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing that all this is going according to Lucifer's plan. I can't help but wonder, are Desire and Lucifer working together? An interesting thought. There's another agent, of course, that's suggested here directly by Lucifer. He suggests that all of his actions have been part of his creator's plan. Right, that's true. So yeah, like I said, I like the way that this is building up nice and slow. That, you know, no single issue is giving us all of it. Mm -hmm. Giving us the whole picture. And it doesn't feel like it's dragging its feet. It feels like it's an ambitious storyline that's really taking its time. An ambitious storyline that's been broken into discrete but meaningful chunks. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of just sort of like philosophical ruminations. There's a lot of just like chat and philosophizing in this issue. Yeah. But it's interesting philosophizing. Mm, okay, you know? yeah. 
it's really sort of setting out more of the kind of distinct cosmology of the Sandman. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what did you think of the demons that we got in this issue? We had kind of a baby with a cobra growing out of it, and there was a wolf with praying mantis claws. Yeah, they just seem to be sort of like random things stuck together. <laughs> okay. Mazikeen was the coolest looking of them. Oh, all right, yeah. But even she didn't really have the sort of coolness of a Sam Keith design. Mm, okay. Hell was a lot more fun to look at the last time we were here. Ah, <laughs> fair enough. And I like the character of Mazikeen as well. She's sort of an epic but not a subtle character. She has this uh, overriding love for Lucifer, which is sort of a bad position to be in. Yeah. We're looking forward to seeing more of her. I mean, even forgetting the fact that he's the goddamn devil. <laughs> the Do literal you... devil? Yeah, Vertigo's Lucifer is also just... He's a really self-centered vain son of a bitch. Well, in a way, that's like the inevitable result of being the lord of your own cosmos. I mean, that's certainly something that Morpheus has to contend with as well. True. Yeah, she shouldn't date Morpheus either. I don't know who she should date. Maybe Harvey Dent. <laughs> I don't know if they're matched or not. <laughs> Is it the left side? Or... <laughs> uh... Well, guys, that's our show. <laughs> All right, folks. When we return to Sandman, we'll be seeing more of the Season of Mists. But first, join us next week. We're going to jump into the Hellblazer story Fear Engine. All right, look forward to it. Hey, if you like our show, be sure to visit us at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, I hope you're subscribed. We sure would love it if you'd leave us a rating or a review. Those really help people to find the show. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter. That's at vertiguys. Or on Gmail, vertiguys at gmail.com. That's right, and we'd love to hear from you. We'd really love to chat about these comics, answer any questions you might have. Yeah, send us questions. We might answer them on air. We want to say your name and everything. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the nad... <laughs> the... Dwelt in the nad... <laughs> <laughs>